The Royal Rooters appear to be a first. They would march up Ruggles Street to the new stadium and they would have uh, a marching band with them. McGreevy had uh, his shillelagh to lead the procession. Nuff said was clearly an organizer and he was the final authority. They were trying to be obnoxious. They were trying to, you know, drive people from New York and Pittsburgh crazy and they did a really good job of it. McGreevy's saloon looked like cheers after a Victorian interior decorator had gotten a hold of it. Our boys will beat you on the field, we'll beat you off the field and take your money home with us. Gambling was big business. You had John F. Kennedy's grandfather was a member of the Royal Rooters. Just Grandpa's presence uh, gave uh, a special bit of panache uh, to the Royal Rooters. It was an extremely democratic organization, democratic in that allowed everyone to behave like a rowdy. They sort of were the Johnny Appleseeds of this relation between the fans and sports. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, friends. It's Tim Hanlon once again with you here on Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast. Uh, each and every week, our little journey into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you. Welcome to the proceedings. And uh, we are uh, going to slide safely, hopefully, into second base uh, and back into baseball. It is uh, postseason time, after all. And uh, what better opportunity to get into uh, some more history and uh, anecdotes about uh, certain teams and leagues, et cetera, that may not exist anymore, which is uh, our penchant, our little want on this little program. And uh, what we're going to do right here is go back, way back, in particular to 19, no, no, even further back than that, 18, yes, 1897. Uh, and uh, we are going to be exploring uh, the heated and pitched battle for the National League pennant uh, that was underway at that time uh, between a team called the Boston Bean Eaters, which uh, you Atlanta Braves fans uh, currently uh, following and, uh, and rooting for. Uh, your team to succeed in this year's uh, baseball playoffs will know that uh, the origins of the Atlanta Braves go way, way back. And in particular to uh, a team in Boston that later became the Braves, but uh, before then had a couple of different incarnations, but were in the in this year, 1897, were known as the Bean Eaters and uh, were a very uh, well-regarded and uh, multi-championship team uh, in the 1890s uh, or so. And uh, well-regarded as uh, a pretty darn good uh, and uh, upstanding team uh, by comparison to some of the other sort of more, shall we say, scruffy and uh, rules-bending uh, teams out there. In particular, uh, what wind up becoming a, a pretty heated battle and arch rival, at least for the 1897 season, uh, and uh, a good juxtaposition as to how also to play the game of baseball, the team called the Baltimore Orioles. No, not the current day version, the one that finished dead last uh, in the American League, and I think in Major League Baseball altogether this year, sadly. But no, the original version, the original professional version uh, of the Baltimore Orioles was uh, around this time. In 1897, they were in the National League. Uh, they actually only lasted in the National League for another two years uh, and then came back in, in other incarnations and names, borrowing the uh, borrowing the name of the team and all that kind of stuff. But uh, make no mistake, they are not uh, the direct lineage of the current Baltimore Orioles. That's for another show, for another day. 
Uh, but the Baltimore Orioles were, uh, shall we say, by comparison to the uh, Bean Eaters of Boston, a little bit more, shall we say, uh, on the edge or edges uh, of how to play the game. A little bit uh, uh, more cunning, shall we say, certainly much more strategic uh, and uh, debatable amongst baseball historians uh, whether they were actually cheating uh, as well and uh, bending the rules or perhaps even breaking them once or twice uh, in a while. Uh, Ned Hanlon, a name, a surname, certainly that uh, you are all familiar with on this little show. Uh, we think there may be some direct relationship with uh, yours truly, your humble host. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but we will certainly get our uh, our family historians on the uh, on the task of finding out whether the great uh, baseball manager and, and prior to that uh, Hall of Famer and uh, player uh, Ned Hanlon, he was the uh, one largely responsible for. Uh, the very uh, compelling and interesting and intriguing ways by which uh, the Baltimore Orioles of the day approach the game. And we're going to get into it uh, with our uh, with our guest uh, this week. Uh, his name is Bill Felber, and his book is called The Game of Brawl, The Orioles, The Bean Eaters, and the Battle for the 1897 Pennant. And uh, my little story here about Ned Hanlon, again, baseball Hall of Famer he. We Hanlons like to uh, hang out uh, with uh, only the... Uh, uh, the the cream of the crop, right? Uh, you could argue that uh, Ned Hanlon and the uh, Baltimore Orioles, he's known as kind of the father of modern baseball by a number of historians and, and arguably uh, well-regarded as one of the game's greatest strategists. Uh, he pioneered sort of this term called inside baseball, which essentially was sort of an umbrella uh, for things like, um, well, at the time, were a bit more sort of advanced thinking uh, and it, to the point of being so advanced that uh, people didn't even know if they were truly within the, the, the rules of the game, things like the hit and run uh, or the squeeze play, things we take for granted today, the sacrifice bunt, uh, the double steal, even something called the Baltimore chop, uh, which uh, you'll want to stick around for and listen, listen for all of that. Uh, and much, much more is encapsulated uh, in this story that we're going to be talking about with our guest, uh, Bill Felber. And again, the book is called The Game of Brawl. The Orioles, the Bean Eaters, and the uh, battle for the 1897 National League pennant, the only uh, league in town. And uh, we get into all kinds of interesting little uh, anecdotes and stories, and uh, And I encourage you to, to take a listen. It's really interesting. I always learn stuff uh, when we go to the Wayback Machine. Uh, although it seems like it's dusty, musty history, it's actually pretty compelling stuff. And you will always find, as I did in this chat with Bill, uh, some interesting lessons and takeaways that uh, resonate even with today's game. So as you're sitting back, popping up, popping out or popping open, there you go, a cold one while you're uh, watching some of the uh, baseball playoffs this year. Uh, you might want to uh, sit back and uh, think about how some of the uh, the great uh, lore and uh, strategy of the game sort of came about. And this episode will certainly help you get to do that. So uh, stay tuned for that chat with Bill coming up in a couple of seconds. A couple of promotional items to uh, get out of the way first, though, please. Uh, we want to say hello and welcome to uh, yet another new sponsor, our friends at 503 Sports. That's 503-sports.com, 503-sports.com. That's the URL. They, they, they fancy themselves as the king of throwbacks. And 503, of course, is a uh, a handy reference to the uh, the area code of uh, beautiful Portland, Oregon and environs. And um, I must tell you that um, our friends at uh, 503 Sports have uh, uh, really, I think, cornered a nice little niche for themselves. Uh, and uh, it's not just old uh, logos uh, and, and T-shirts, but literally uh, they get into the uh, the remaking of 
uh, jerseys uh, and other wear as well. And uh, if you're uh, a USFL football fan, a previous episode or two to that, or the XFL, if you remember them, if you uh, have some old WHA hockey memories and other sports and teams and leagues, you can not only get the shirts with the logos on them, but you can also get beautifully handcrafted, almost custom made, I think, uh, jerseys and or sweaters from these teams with their original logos and uh, color schemes uh, from our friends at 503 Sports. I encourage you highly to check them out. It's 503 Sports. That's the name of them. It's 503-sports.com. And make sure that you uh, write down and use this promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S. Make sure you spell it right. Promo code SEATS when you uh, check out at 503 Sports and you're going to get 10% off of all of your purchases. I highly encourage you to give the king of throwbacks a a try at 503 Sports. That's 503-Sports.com. And again, that promo code SEATS gets you 10% off all of your purchases. And we thank uh, the guys and gals uh, out there in Portland, and we look forward to uh, welcoming them for future episodes and hopefully some cool promotional stuff uh, that we've already been talking about. Uh, to come. We also want to say hello to our friends at Audible and remind you that audiobooks are uh, are there uh, and available for you to enjoy uh, and you get a free one to try it out for yourself courtesy of us. And that's audibletrial.com slash good seats. And there you're going to get well, a free download, actually a free whole download of any book from their vast library of over 180,000 titles. Uh, for you to try, to uh, to keep, to enjoy for as long as your device lives. Uh, so even if you uh, decide to cancel the service after your download of your first book, you get to keep it for, like I said, as long as you, uh, you have your device. And uh, if you consider yourself a slow reader, no, slow listener, uh, no problem there. You take as long as you want. But that book, that audio book is free for you. And uh, we encourage you to give that a try. Audibletrial.com slash good seats. You're going to get free one month uh, trial of the uh, Audible service and your free audiobook download. And uh, again, it's yours to keep and you can cancel at any time. There is no risk. There is no obligation. Uh, I don't know why you won't want to give that a try for yourself. Try a free audiobook. You don't like it. Cancel the service. Keep the book. Listen to it. And uh, just remember your friends here at Good Seats still available. Uh, we're the ones that help you, uh, you know, get a taste of what an audiobook is. And we appreciate Audible for their continued sponsorship of the show as well. All right, so let's move on now, shall we, into our conversation uh, with uh, journalist and writer Bill Felber and uh, our discussion about the uh, the old school Baltimore Orioles, the Boston Bean Eaters, and the classic challenge, the pennant race of 1897, coming up right here on the show. Before we get going, why don't you give our audience a sense of... Um, your background and uh, both, uh, you know, in real life as well as uh, what we're going to talk about here and how you stumbled across uh, an interest and or the story uh, that your book, uh, your book uh, encompasses. Sure. Um, I am a retired newspaper editor by profession. That's how I made my living for 44 years and um, uh, didn't do anything in that line of work in the sports realm. I was entirely out of it, but I've always been interested in sports and baseball in particular and uh, from Chicago originally and uh, developed an interest in baseball there. And uh, so I've always pursued as an avocation, uh, been a baseball researcher for 40 years 
And uh, in terms of this particular story, there are certain times when you just go around looking for good stories that haven't been told. And, and when I took this assignment on, it really jumped. It was because it jumped out at me as a one of the two or three moments in baseball history when the game really fundamentally was at the cusp of change. And this was, I saw it as a chance to tell some of the uh, elements of that change. So the story, though, right, is uh, is, is centers around, you know, we're talking about a a situation, 1897. It's a long, long time ago. Right. And how um, what what you know, that's that's a pretty broad and sweeping statement to say uh, that this one, perhaps amongst uh, most of the others, uh, given that long and torturous history of this of the sport of baseball, um, what, what specifically uh, kind of stood out? And maybe how did you kind of even sort of stumble across it in the first place? Sure. Um, what what stands out about it is that this these events occur at a time when when baseball is really wrestling with fundamental kinds of things about how the game is going to be played. And, and by that, I really literally mean uh, the fairness issues of the equity of playing the game. Uh, is it going to be, and that's one of the, the master narratives that I kind of go back to time and again in the book, is it going to be played by the rules or is it going to be played by the cutthroat measures um, that um, emphasize winning at all costs? And um, this is really the most significant time in the game's history when that fundamental question was at issue. The previous three years prior to this, the time that this story takes place, the champions of baseball had been the Baltimore Orioles, who were an exceptional team in a lot of different ways, including many innovative ways. But some of those innovations, frankly, were just cheating. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Some of them were not. Some of them were very innovative and are still around today. But some of them were simply cheating. And the fundamental question that was at issue was, uh, it can is this kind of is this the way baseball is going? Is it going to become a cutthroat game or is it going to become a more civilized game and which is going to be tolerated? And can any force stop a, a talented force that is dedicated to pursuing its ends by whatever means necessary? Now, you also asked me how I came upon the story. That's the easy part. Uh, there are various people who had remarked upon this in passing previously. In fact, I'm one of probably a few million people who um, have kept up with Bill James's various works. And I recall in one of them, I think it was the historical baseball abstract back in the late 1980s, he um, listed various ideas he thought would be great books. And this was one of them. This pennant race was one of them listed it as a sentence or two. And that always struck me as, well, he's right about that. Nobody ever did it. So eventually I said, I'm going to do that. It needs to be done. All right. Well, let's set, let's set the scene a little bit, right? So we're, we're talking about a time in, in baseball's um, still very uh, formative years, right? There's a, we, we've talked a lot about a var- various aspects of the game 
the Union Association and the American Association, the, the, the preludes, uh, if you will, to what became the National League and the American League, uh, the American Association, all those things. But maybe you can sort of scene set here. So we're really talking about uh, the 1897 season in the National League, but uh, maybe you can give us a bit of a a scene setter, if you will, about baseball at the time and maybe some of the backdrop, if you will, of of the, the intricacies that we're going to get into a little later. The National League's only 20 years old at this time. Um, the uh, Just to, to give you a little bit of a sense of how things are, are changing, are mobile at this time, uh, the notion of pitching from a mound at 60 feet, six, six inches, went into effect four years ago. Um, this is the uh, fifth year that that's occurred. Uh, prior to that, uh, no. Um, a lot of things we take for granted today uh, are revolutionary concepts at that time. One of the, one of the driving forces that, uh, in, in all of this is the notion of umpiring. Um, it is common in, at that time for all games to be umpired by one person, uh, either standing behind home plate or standing behind the pitcher, depending on the game situation. Um, and that one umpire will be responsible for everything. The entire National League umpiring staff only consists of about seven or eight people. They come and go, so it's a, the number's a little bit fluid. But it only consists of about seven or eight people. They travel around the country, except they don't really travel too much because they kind of are based in various places. So you will see one umpire, and that umpire will basically work every game that takes place in Louisville or every game that takes place in Brooklyn or, uh, or New York, or maybe not literally every game, but two-thirds of them. Um, you can let your imagination run a little bit and probably deduce what would happen today if ball games were umpired by one person um, and there was no video, no instant replay, no uh, means of checking and reviewing things such as we have today, um, what the situation would be. And that's pretty much what the situation was in those days. Uh, the ball was significantly different, the composition of it. But um, mostly the, the compositional difference was that uh, it simply wasn't taken out of play. It was hit and hit and hit and hit and hit. And um, it would not necessarily be unusual to go through an entire game with one ball. Um, but, but certainly they wouldn't expect to use more than six or eight in an entire ball game. Uh, you can imagine what changes that would have on the, on the game. But the, the real... The real one was that uh, at that time there was a, a sense that what was really important here above everything else was to win, and uh, the methods really didn't make much difference. All right, so let's uh, maybe uh, get a little bit deeper then. You, now we're going to sort of get into the teams, and you know, one of which is actually still uh, still around in a, current, in, a, in a current incarnation, that being the now Atlanta Braves, right, the Boston Bean Eaters. Uh, circa 1897, and the other uh, kind of mis of misnomer, frankly, to a, a, a certainly a today's generation of baseball fans, the quote unquote Baltimore Orioles, who have uh, really, aside from the name, really no relation to the current Baltimore Orioles team that we know today. Right. 
maybe a little background on sure. both of those teams, and then we'll that, then we'll get into the meat of the matter, the uh, the sort of scrap yeah. that, uh, of that that, that comprise the season. There are 12 teams in the National League at this time, not eight, 12. It is a consolidation of the National League and the American Association, which was a, a major league up until 1892 when it was fold, when it folded and was merged in with the National League. That's why you have a single 12-team league. There is no American League at this point. There won't be for another four years. Um, the, the two major powerhouses, there are several teams that are, that are perennially strong, but the two major powerhouses are the Boston Bean Eaters, who, as you say, are the forerunners of today's Atlanta Braves, um, and the uh, Baltimore Orioles. The Baltimore Orioles were one of the American Association teams that came over um, into the National League, and... Um, and two years later, at the end of the 1899 season, were made to go away uh, during a, a merger, uh, a consolidation of the league um, that has a lot of issues in its own right and is sort of a, a follow-up to the book, but isn't really a major focus of the book. Um, but at the time, the um, and, and those two teams, Boston and Baltimore, between them, to give you an idea of how dominant they were, between them had won every National League pennant since 1891. This is now 1897. So for six years, they have split Boston winning in 1891, 1892, and 1893, Baltimore winning in 1894, 95, and 96. And uh, they were really the two dominant forces in the league, as I say, with the occasional interference of uh, New York, Cleveland might have a decent team, um, but they were the constants. And Boston even actually had its uh, roots uh, perhaps maybe in the earliest uh, formative days of, of what is now Major League or became Major League Baseball and that they essentially were formed out of the diaspora of the original Cincinnati Red Stockings uh, that yeah. originated back in 1869. Not, you know, a little bit of a break or so in terms of the uh, the actual direct history and lineage, but it, it suffice to say that this, that this franchise – uh, and that, especially in that that period of time, was probably one of the you know uh, earliest uh, formed uh, professional teams in baseball, uh, early as it might have been. Well, I think I think that um, certainly the the um, the team we call the Braves now um, can trace its roots directly back at at least to 1876, probably legitimately to 1871 at least. And, and uh, if we go back two more years, your point is valid that uh, the heart of the original Boston team and what was then called the National Association, which was a loose professional organization of players and teams in 1871, um, the heart of that team was essentially comprised of the Cincinnati Red Stockings of 1869 and 70, the first recognized professional team and the first probably really great team in any sense, um, not recognized as much today because simply they, they didn't play in a league. They played, uh, they were a traveling team, um, but an exceptional one. Uh, many of their players, when, when, when the National Association formed, many of their players went to Boston, formed uh, the, the, the Boston team, which then um, moved into the National League five years later in 1876 when it was formed. And uh, have been there ever since. 
So you're mentioning these two teams, right, which, which are uh, historically uh, at that point uh, very competitive and, and often uh, near the top and, and, and challenging for for supremacy in this uh, fledgling uh, National League. Um, maybe a little bit of uh, understanding about uh, what the 1897 season uh, was all about. The Orioles, for, 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 uh, for one, uh, were effectively, I think, coming off of three consecutive first-place finishes uh, going into the 1897 right. season. So clearly on paper yeah. and maybe on the diamond, they were expected to probably do well, no? The, yeah, the Orioles are an interesting case, uh, Tim, because um, prior to 1894, they frankly were pretty bad. Um, they, they were never particularly good in the American Association, which is the league they had been in previously, uh, moved over to the National League, uh, and, and, and for a couple of years were bottom feeders. A couple things happened prior to the 1894 season. They hired a new manager. His name was Ned Hanlon. They hired a, um, uh, Hanlon was a genius um, at uh, transactions. He made um, some of the most phenomenal trades uh, you could ever imagine making. Uh, they were absolute steals. He acquired uh, Huey Jennings. He acquired Wee Willie Keeler. He acquired uh, Dan Brothers. Um, he acquired Joe Kelly. All of these guys were going to be stars in the next few years for Baltimore. All of them would carry Baltimore to penance. And frankly, he didn't give up anything for any of them. They were all basically rejects. Um, and Hanlon saw something in them and brought them in. But the other remarkable thing about them was that they were inventive. They were really probably one of the first truly inventive teams in terms of strategy. Um, they had a lot of guys who liked to sit around and brainstorm how to win baseball games. Uh, Huey Jennings, John McGraw, who uh, had who was not a Hanlon product, he was in Baltimore previously with a couple of the bad teams. Um, Kelly, um, guys like that, uh, had a had a great affinity for trying to figure out in what way can we win, and that was really the only thing they cared about. Some of those ways were legitimate, some of them weren't. And in 1894, this Baltimore team, with all these new figures and this relatively new manager, essentially exploded on the baseball world. Um, jumped several, jumped from the middle of the pack in the National League to a comfortable pennant, um, and uh, initiated this, if you will, dynasty, if that's not too strong a term for three pennants in a row. Um, that carried them and carried them and carried them. So I, I know most of our listeners uh, are desperate to know if there's any direct lineage between yours truly, your humble host, and the great Ned Hamlin, the Baseball Hall of Famer. You're going to have to answer that, yeah. Uh, we uh, yeah. like to think there is. Uh, we have uh, engaged a few of our uh, distant and uh, close relatives to uh, to find out the answer to that. But uh, let's suffice to say for this conversation, let's assume that there's uh, probably a, a branch or a leaf somewhere in the family tree. Um, I, I'd make that assumption if I were you. Well, who knows? I mean, I, I, I didn't, I, you know, I, I don't have a, a great nickname like Foxy Ned did. Uh, yeah. But um, it's also pretty. Uh, you you state also that Ned Hanlon is, in fact, a Hall of Famer. Oh, no doubt. No, uh, no question. And um, uh, but he's also w regarded as um, I, I guess by a, a bunch of folks as sort of the father of uh, of modern baseball and. And especially for 
a lot of the innovations he brought to the game uh, early and uh, somewhat uh, uh, squirrely as the professional game might have been at that time uh, around yeah. strategy, right? Things like the hit and run and and this idea of squeeze plays and, and, and inside baseball kind of stuff, kind of manufacturing stuff. Um, yeah. Maybe a little bit of insight into sort of what uh, how how innovative he was at this time uh, in baseball. The best known of them, I think, because largely because it's the most lasting. Um, and he invented it. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. That that may be a little bit. He popularized it. Uh, it's a it's like a lot of things. We don't actually know who invented it. Uh, but but Hamlin certainly popularized. It. And when I say Hamlin, I really mean the Orioles themselves. One of the things that's not really clear. It's very clear that the Orioles had a had a great proclivity for holding what we would call chalk talk sessions. That is to say classroom practice sessions on how to do things. And they were, they were avid about it. Uh, they, in spring training, supposedly they held these things literally every evening where they just all get together in a room and try to figure out, can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? Some of them, it's not clear whether that was Hamlin doing it or whether it was McGraw or whether it was McGraw and Jennings or McGraw Jennings and Kelly or uh, Keeler or, or all of them combined. Uh, to what extent Hanlon participated, to what extent the players just kind of led it and made things up. We really don't have a, a good feel for that. But Hanlon was the manager, and he had the control on it, and uh, so he gets, I think he gets a fair amount of the credit for it. Um, some of them were were legitimate, and some of them were not. Some of the legitimate ones you talked about, um, he was a, a, a fiend about bunting, uh, and when I say bunting, I'm not talking about sacrifice bunting. I'm talking about if you bunt the ball 32 feet down the third base line and drop it in that particular spot on the grass, that three-foot circle in the grass, it is not possible for a fielder to throw you out. Uh, and that's the way they practiced, and that's the way they made it work. Um, some of the other things were uh, more marginal. They um, There were famous instances of... Um, uh, Orioles hiding balls in the outfield so that they, if a ball got past them, they just reach down, grab one of the spare balls and throw it in and do that. There are famous passages about Orioles cutting bases. That was not at all unique to the Orioles, by the way. A lot of players on a lot of teams did that. Uh, they could get away with all these things because, again, there was usually one umpire, which meant his, his back had to be turned to something. It was either his back was either turned to fielders or to base runners. Somebody was going to get away with something. Um, they would do various things with the ground. They were they were the first team to really manipulate their playing field. Um, whether it was height of the grass in the outfield to hide those balls, whether it was tamping down. One of the things they did was was tamp down the ground directly in front of the plate uh, into a very very rock hard consistency so that their players could hit what became known as the Baltimore chop, which was simply uh, slapping down very hard on a baseball on a pitch, hitting it straight down into that hard ground. The ball would bounce high up in the air. The player would run to first base before the ball came down um, and get a base hit. Um, they, they, uh, they had a groundskeeper named Murphy who would, uh, it has at least been alleged, and I think there's reason to believe it, would uh, seed soap suds into the area around the pitching mound. Um, now, why would he do that? Well, because in those days,
if pitchers needed to dry off the ball, they would uh, reach down for some dirt and uh, dry it off and wet it. And uh, they might rub some of it in their sweat. And if they were sweating, then they'd rub some of it on their face. And they would get soap suds in their eyes and, 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 and irritate them. How did the Orioles uh, avoid that? They knew where not to reach. Uh, they knew the area that was laced. Um, it's a lot of those different kinds of stories that um, uh, the Orioles became famous for. As I say, some legit, some not. Okay, so it sounds to the untrained ear, that sounds a little mm-hmm. like, or maybe a lot like cheating. No? It is cheating. Um, but you could get away with it because, again, you only have one umpire. And um, uh, he couldn't see everything. So the uh, the 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 glass half full uh, listener would say that's simply trying to take advantage of and maximize to the best of your abilities the rules as they're written, uh, yep. and and maybe even a little further. So should there be perhaps a, a, a wandering eye or perhaps uh, an umpire turned back? Uh, yeah. while doing something. Interesting. Push, pushing the envelope, shall we say. Occasionally, obviously, occasionally they got caught. Um, there was one famous instance, it didn't involve the Orioles, it involved a Cincinnati Reds player, where uh, one of the umpires, uh, it was a fellow named Tim Hurst, who was a, um, uh, one of the famous umpires of that day, uh, was watching a play develop. Uh, a runner arrived at home plate. Hurst called the runner out. He obviously hadn't been looking at the play, and the, um, the runner said, how can you call me out? You weren't even looking. And Hurst said, you got there too fast. He knew he'd cut the base. Um, and it, it, that's kind of the, the way the game was played then. The other thing the Orioles were very good at was um, umpire baiting. They um, had no compunction at all about fighting with umpires, uh, including literally fighting with umpires. Um, they would intimidate umpires. They, uh, their language was uh, coarse by the standards of 1897, which I think is still pretty coarse by the standards of today, at least in the ball field. Um, they were confrontational. Uh, there are several instances in, in the game at that time of umpires literally quitting uh, because they couldn't take the abuse that was handed out, not just by the Orioles, but primarily, but by other teams as well. Um, and uh, so all of this coalesces into what becomes essentially a crisis in terms of how the game is going to be played. And it doesn't hurt that crisis any that the Orioles are winning, winning, and winning. All right. Well, so we've established them. So let's, let's, uh, let's paint the picture of the, uh, of the Boston Bean Eaters uh, by comparison. Yeah. How similar, how dissimilar, uh, and what, to, what, what could you owe their uh, uh, respective dominance and competitiveness around this time, 1897, as well. Yeah. yeah. First of all, let, let me say that, uh, I mean, obviously I didn't see them play, but my suspicion is that the, the Boston Bean Eaters, who had a, a reputation contrasting very starkly with the Orioles, a reputation as clean players, of upholders of good, clean sportsmanship, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that... that the, the surviving evidence suggests that they weren't nearly as moral as they um, are purported to be. And what they really benefited from was looking very good in contrast to the Orioles. 
um, but they were a heck of a team. Um, on the field, they had some of the great stars of the game. They had Hall of Famers. They had uh, Kid Nichols was a pitcher. Kid Nichols won, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but it was on the order of 350 games in 12 seasons. Um, I mean, won 30 games almost almost literally every year. He wins 30 games in 1897. Um, they had a, a, a Hall of Famer in left field named Hugh Duffy, uh, who was an exceptional hitter. Um, they had an extremely talented, for the standards of the 19th century, and those standards are certainly different from today, extremely talented defensive infield with a fellow named uh, Jimmy Collins at third base, another Hall of Famer. Um, though he was said to be the one guy John McGraw wouldn't bunt on. Um, Dutch Long, a shortstop, uh, exceptional fielder by the standards of the day. Um, Bobby Lowe, second baseman, uh, very good again. And Fred Tenney, a, a young up-and-coming and, but very good first baseman. And um, they, their manager was a fellow named Frank Seeley, who was also a Hall of Famer, uh, who was equally as cerebral as Ned Hanlon um, and um, had a reputation anyway or benefited from his team's reputation as being less uh, willing to resort to what I'll characterize as nefarious means to win. As I say, I don't think that reputation is entirely valid. My guess is the, the bean eaters uh, did a lot of stuff and got away with it because uh, they were a little bit less in your face about it uh, than the Orioles were. The Orioles essentially adopted an attitude of, uh, so what, we're winning. Deal with it. All right, hang in there. We'll be uh, back to our conversation in just a minute. But, uh, you know, we got to pay the bills around here. And we want to uh, wish well to our new sponsor uh, in helping us pay some of those bills. It's my bookie. And I uh, can't uh, imagine a better uh, a better sponsor uh, this time of year as the pro and college football seasons start gearing up. Uh, if you want to get some action in on uh, some of those games and, frankly, a whole host of other sports, uh, teams and leagues, uh, not ones that are not around anymore, like we focus here on this little show. I mean, kind of hard to bet on on teams that don't exist anymore. But uh, but clearly today, in today's modern era sports, uh, there's a lot going on. And if you want to bet on uh, on games, uh, not just pro football, but just about any sport out there on the planet, uh, you can uh, do so with uh, with relative ease uh, and pure satisfaction with MyBookie. That's MyBookie.ag. That's the website. If you use the promo code SEATS, they're going to match your initial deposit up to 1000 bucks, dollar for dollar. That's the promo code SEATS, and they're going to match your deposit, your opening deposit, dollar for dollar, up to 1000 bucks, And that's going to be some handy coin uh, to use in uh, in some of your first games uh, that uh, you bet with them at MyBookie, mybookie.ag. That's the website. Um, you know, you can bet in-game. Uh, you can bet on uh, all kinds of sports, both uh, U.S., domestic, and internationally. Uh, and uh, look, there's some other things, too. I think they've got some uh, some bets as we're recording this on things like the MTV Video Music Awards and you know all kinds of other fun stuff. So MyBookie is the place to go. Uh, it's MyBookie.ag. And make sure you use that promo code GOODSEATS, and they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar up to 1000 bucks, And that's going to be uh, a nice uh, chunk of extra change to put to work uh, with your inklings on who you think is going to win 
uh, in uh, in various games, football and otherwise, uh, as the season progresses. That's MyBookie, MyBookie.ag. We thank them for their sponsorship. And don't forget to use that promo code SEATS uh, to get that uh, that special deposit bonus. And now, back to our conversation. So how does this uh, how does this season uh, get going, and and wh- what is it about these two franchises that enable them to, I don't know, get so so entangled and uh, become such a uh, a heated yeah. battle for the pennant that year, uh, and uh, and uh, and the story behind it. Boston, uh, of course, has a long uh, history at this for the as long as you can have it in, in baseball at this time has a lengthy history of being basically a center of baseball. Um, in, in the 1890s, it is probably the most traditional bastion of baseball in the United States. Uh, and that's largely because the Boston team has been so good for so long. It is the Yankees of the um, National League um, in terms of tradition. Um, Baltimore is viewed as an upstart, uh, particularly in Boston, where the um, uh, the news media and the fans view um, the Orioles as these rowdy, unworthy uh, newcomers trying to come in and and change the game and and lower the property values, as it were. Um, it's it's. A little bit like if you have a, a neighborhood and you're the rich person in the neighborhood and somebody moves in next to you and is adopts a very ostentatious lifestyle that challenges your position as the uh, recognized leader and goes out and, and wins for three straight years. Um, you um, want to change that. Uh, and that's what Boston, Boston takes this on essentially as a crusade driven in part by the fact that um, uh, of the way the game is played and with all the, 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 the cheating, which is very obvious to the fans, of course, they can see it right in front of them, that Baltimore uh, appears to be constantly getting away with, um, that Baltimore, uh, Boston sees that as a threat to the game. And essentially, in the, in the media and in the public at the time, turns this pennant race into... Uh, almost a biblical kind of uh, good versus evil kind of thing, that we have to beat Baltimore to save the future of baseball. It's, and it's literally cast in that means in some fashions at some times. So when, when is this, uh, how does this season sort of unfold? When, when, is, it, uh, when is it getting evident that uh, these two teams in particular are going to sort of... It, it starts right away. It, it starts right away. The first three games of the season are played in Baltimore, against Boston, uh, and um, uh, it starts with a parade where Baltimore parades the championship banner all through the town, right through town, and Baltimore, lo and behold, sweeps the series, wins all three games. So right away, you have Baltimore putting its foot down on that. Um, But Boston recovers, and by the middle of the season, um, the, uh, the two teams are in first and second place, and kind of rocketing along um, with not much of a significant challenge. Um, the, uh, 
in, in those days, you played a 134-game schedule, but you only, because there were 12 teams, you only played each other four times, twice in each place. One at the, um, uh, well, uh, you played a double home and home. Boston plays Baltimore again in um, the middle of the season and uh, wins, um, I'm looking through my stats here, um, wins two out of three, but then plays them again in August in Boston and loses two out of three in a very heated series that takes place at the time let me look up a re- real quickly here the standings. At the time that this series is played, Boston is in first place by two games over Baltimore. Boston's record is 600, is a winning percentage of 682. Baltimore's is 667, which is not too bad for a second-place team. Um, and there is one other team at that stage that's anywhere close to them. The others are, are well back. Baltimore wins two out of three, and that game is marred by a, a fist fight between uh, one of the Baltimore players, a uh, very aptly named one, uh, Dirty Jack Doyle, who was named Dirty Jack Doyle not because he was he rolled around in the dirt, but literally because he was a dirty player. And, um, and the umpire, a fellow named Thomas J. Lynch, um, there are literal fisticuffs exchanged, um, and uh, Lynch is injured, and the next day, the um, the National League to play the to play the concluding game of this three game series has to bring in a rookie umpire from a minor league to handle the rest of the series because Lynch refuses to play it to umpire it because he got beat up in one of the, in in that in that ball game. Um, the the um, season progresses from there. The teams. That's the third of the four meetings between the two teams. And from there, they're, um, they gradually both kind of go on these long winning streaks. So that, uh, just to give you an example, um, by September, by early in September, Boston is now winning at a 70% percentage rate. So is Baltimore. Boston's record is 78-34. Baltimore's is 75-33. Baltimore's one game behind Boston, and nobody else is within seven games of the lead. And they both go on and win um, 18 of the next 22 games, um, just destroying the competition. So that by the time we get to their final meeting, which is a schedule maker's dream, it takes place on um, the, in the last week of the season, with just a couple games to go afterward, they are both a mile out in front of everybody else, but within a half game of each other. And they have been within a half game of each other for the entire month. How about the uh, so uh, bad blood though? It seems like this uh, that that it's pretty clear that uh, the teams did not like each other and. <clears throat> Probably not the same uh, uh, level of uh, uh, gentleman's uh, agreement, I guess, versus, say, the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Chicago Colts or the Cleveland Spiders of the day. Yeah, I, I have not seen direct evidence that the players ever fought 
on the field. I've, uh, as I said, we have, there's, it's clear that players fought with umpires. Um, they fought with other players from other teams. I have not seen direct evidence that the Orioles and the Bean Eaters themselves got into fisticuffs. I wouldn't rule that out, but I think if it had happened on the field, it would have been reported as such. Uh, one of the interesting things about, about this is that off the field, these players did, from time to time, fraternize some um, in ways that are kind of contrary to their on-field images. Um, at the time that this all takes place, John McGraw and Wilbur Robertson, who are two of the major figures for the Orioles, two of their starters, they co-own a restaurant um, in Baltimore, a place called the Diamond Restaurant. When um, this last series takes place in Baltimore in late September, um, several of the Boston players visit the Diamond Restaurant uh, for dinner um, the evening before the first game. And um, obviously they... um, interact with McGraw and Robinson, and uh, it would appear that they are on relatively amicable terms. Uh, I'm not sure I literally buy that. There may be some element of facade to that, Um, but uh, it's clear that McGraw and Robinson had some of them over um, for dinner on the evening of uh, of the first game itself. Uh, I might add, we haven't really mentioned this, but I want to throw it in there at, at this stage, Tim, that this is also the time uh, that we get to an element of this story called the Royal Rooters. Um, some of you some of you may have may be familiar with the Royal Rooters, who is a, a essentially a fan club. It's a Boston-based fan club that is best known for rooting on the uh, Boston Red Sox in the first 10 to 15 years of the 20th century. The Rooters actually organized in 1897 to support the Bean Eaters. They organized around a, 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 a tavern called Third Base and it's run by a fellow named Nuff Said McGreevy and it becomes their hangout. And um, the most interesting element of that is that as this season winds and builds toward its crescendo with these two teams on such an obvious collision course, about 100 to 125 of the rooters get together at uh, McGreevy's Tavern and decide, you know what we need to do? We need to buy tickets and go to Baltimore for those last three games. That was unprecedented at the time. I mean, fans just didn't do that in any large numbers. But they organized an expedition and um, went by train and by boat down to Baltimore and bought tickets for the three games and and um, plopped themselves right in the middle of these overflow Orioles, rabbit Orioles crowds cheering for the Bean Eaters. Um, and some of them, I would guess, probably went to McGraw's restaurant as well, although I don't know that for a fact. <laughs> so uh, we mentioned before, it's good to bring this up, uh, we mentioned before uh, uh, some of the I don't know. Uh, interesting and uh, innovative ways that uh, the groundskeepers at uh, Baltimore's Union Park 
uh, yeah. kind of sort of set things up to make it sort of more advantageous. Was there any similar, shall we call them shenanigans at uh, Boston's South End grounds at the time too? Was that sort of standard procedure for teams in that in that uh, in that era, or or is that uniquely a Baltimore thing and uh, maybe a little bit more of a of an even keel kind of playing surface in uh, in Boston during this time? I have to give you a vague answer to that. Um, the, the 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 Murphy the Murphy guys the Murphy brothers are the the only they're the only groundskeepers I know of who ever had a book written about them. Um, they were famous, and and the, there is no comparable Boston greenskeeper or groundskeeper who um, um, manipulate was known to manipulate things at the Boston field. I would find it impossible to believe that that every team, including Boston, didn't do something to its field to manicure the field to take most advantage of its particular talents. Um, but I will say this, the, uh, if, if you assume that it occurred in Boston, and I do assume it occurred, they were far too discreet to write about it and make a big deal of it. Uh, so there's no record of it that I'm aware of. Um, I, I can't believe it wasn't common because it would just have to be, I think. Uh, but, but, you know, Boston, it, contrast the cities. Think about the cities for a minute or two. Baltimore is this rough, tumble, borderline north-south uh, wharf city. And it has a lot of those, its fans have a lot of those characteristics, and its, and its attitude toward baseball has a lot of those characteristics. Boston is at least in perception in the 1890s a very patrician, very reserved, very religious city, and its fans and its and its writing brings a lot of that that ethic to it. Now, whether that's actually the case, uh, we only know what what is handed down to us at this stage. Um, my guess is it isn't. It wasn't actually the case, at least not entirely, that there was a fair amount of, of things going on with Boston too. But it was presented as uh, a, a lot of the things that the Orioles chose to do with their field that Boston was above and that really weren't proper, and that uh, therefore they wouldn't do them, and they looked down on Baltimore for doing them. The relative high road, if you will. Well, yeah, I think um, I think so. I mean, and I think again. I think it fits the impressions we would have of those two cities where we around those two cities at the time. All right, let's talk about the um, the actual uh, season and the playoffs, quote unquote, uh, because yeah. I think to our to our listeners, uh, this is going to be somewhat of a foreign concept, right? You you alluded to a twelve team uh, National League, and um, you know the uh, the Bean Eaters uh, wound up winning the pennant quote-unquote, right, uh, the regular season yep. championship. Yep. Two games over the Orioles with a 93-39 and uh, 39 record, uh, so it was 700 and I guess 705-ish uh, percentage. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not the end of the story, right? The uh, the Bean Eaters winning the pennant by two games, uh, it actually uh, then became sort of the prelude to this other thing, uh, way before a thing called the World Series, known as the Temple Cup. Maybe you can give our audience a sense as to what that is or was all about, and, and maybe why uh, this thing existed, given the fact that uh, they had just completed a season uh, and already had a pennant uh, winner uh, in Boston. Yeah. Let me go back to um, the late 1880s. 
when you had two what were viewed as major leagues, the National League and the American Association. Over time, it didn't happen naturally, it didn't happen in a, in a particularly organized fashion, but over time, it was determined that the champions of those two leagues would meet in what came to be called the World Series. Um, and they did from about 1884 through about 1890, I believe it was, maybe 91. And then the American Association went out of business and the National League uh, took in some of the association teams, but that left one, one league and one league only. Um, the question kind of gradually arose, well, what are you going to do about a World Series? And they didn't call it that, but well, that, it, but that was the notion. What's going to replace the World Series? Um, the, in eight, the first year, 1892, they, for, for reasons that are uh, irrelevant to this book, they, they had a, a split season where they split the season in two halves. And their, their postseason play that year consisted of the champions of each of the first first half and second half, which happened to be Boston and Cleveland. Boston won. Um, in 1893, there simply was nothing. Boston won the pennant, and that was the end of it. But following 1893, there was a, a, a sentiment growing that there needed to be some kind of postseason concluding competition. And a fellow named William Temple, who was, lived in Pittsburgh, stepped up and donated a cup that was called the Temple Cup, and uh, it was to be given to the winner of a postseason series between the first place team and the second place team. Um, and um, he stipulated a breakdown of the proceeds and uh, with the winner taking the, the great lion's share of it. And that series was contested in 1894 and again in 1895 and again in 1896. But several problems arose uh, with that almost immediately. The first of which was that the players to all appearances, made side bets uh, or side agreements, not bets, side agreements that basically no matter how it turned out, they'd split the shares, um, which sort of defeated the purpose of playing to win. If you knew how much you were going to make, whether you won or lost, it didn't make any difference. And that created a, a secondary suspicion that the games were more exhibitions than anything else. Uh, the other thing that may have contributed was the fact that the Baltimore Orioles won the pennant in 1894, 1895, and 1896. In 1894, they, they played the New York Giants for the Temple Cup, and the Giants won. It was playing the Orioles with a better team, but they just kind of didn't seem to care about the postseason play, about the Temple Cup. So uh, the Giants won. In 1895, the Orioles won again, played the Cleveland Spiders, and the Spiders won, beat the Orioles again. So you have the first few years of this Temple Cup with the second-place team defeating the first-place team, and everybody felt like, well, this really isn't very credible if the best team isn't winning. Um, and one of the ways that translated was at the gate. Attendance simply fell fairly dramatically. Uh, the, the Cup was held again in 1896. The Orioles this time did win the, both the pennant and the Cup uh, and, and beating beat Cleveland. And then it was held again in 1897, with Boston and Baltimore meeting, and, and this meeting was just a little bit more than a week after their their final meeting in the regular season, been, and that was a meeting at which the pennant was really effectively decided. They met again for the Temple Cup, 
and and Baltimore won the Temple Cup um, fairly easily over Boston. Again, um, suggesting to people that uh, the champions weren't really trying very hard. The other element that came into play was the crowds for the Temple Cup series, particularly in Boston, were very, very slim. It was seen as quite an anticlimax. In in Baltimore, for that last regular season series between the two teams, the crowds had run between 12,000 and 30,000. Now, to give you an idea of what that means, on an average ball game in those days, an average attendance would be a couple thousand people. And it could be smaller. That would be an average number. The parks were basically built to hold around 10,000. Every one of the games that was played in that final series, um, the final regular season series, uh, exceeded the capacity of the park. Uh, the last one by such an extent that there were people breaking down gates, there were people six deep in the outfield, there were people around all the foul lines, there were people up on the houses, up on the roofs of houses across the street, people climbing light poles or telegraph poles, probably telegraph poles, around the ballpark. Um, they estimated the crowd for that last regular season game uh, at 30,000. The Temple Cup comes along and the crowds are, are around 1,200. 1500. I mean, there's almost no public interest in the Temple Cup games. Baltimore wins that cup, but after that cup is contested, the 1897 Cup, um, it is decided that the Temple Cup itself is just not working as a concept, and it is uh, retired. Uh, uh, if I recall the story, the cup is returned to Mr. Temple and uh, there are no more Temple Cup series after 1897, largely due to lack of interest. It's interesting because you, you look back at that and it almost feels like uh, that's sort of a, a very sort of rudimentary beginning uh, to what is now no, it's considered to be pro sports playoffs, right? Where you have a, right. a number of teams, right? Uh, not just the one, one team that wins the regular season's uh, uh, adventures. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's an obvious difference and an obvious change in public attitude about what's important because within a decade and less than a decade you will have a World Series between the National League and the New American League and attendance will be good. There are some; it'll vary. It's not um, I, it's not a focus of my book, so I I don't have the exact numbers at hand. But there are certainly some well-attended postseason uh, World Series games in the early days. There's also some that are not. Some of those games are played in northern locations in October. That can be a little bit challenging. Um, but um, fairly quickly, the World Series is seen as being the preeminent sporting event on a par in the country on a par with a heavyweight championship fight. I just think it's also interesting, too, and again, uh, you know, uh, history is hindsight, and, and, and obviously the game was far different back then, and the mores and the uh, interest level of, 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 you know, why you play and all that kind of stuff was certainly certainly different than it is today. But, you know, this idea that, um, you know, these two teams that were uh, so uh, uh, rigidly locked in battle, especially that last week slash weekend uh, of the regular season and, and the sort of the, the pitched battle, if you will, sort of somewhat good versus sort of somewhat evil, if you will. 
um, the the pennant having been determined that fans wouldn't sort of embrace and the players as well, uh, maybe with a little extra coin uh, to boot, uh, a few more games to kind of, you know, sort of uh, revel in in their uh, disdain for each other and, and maybe sort of continue the uh, the fun and frivolity. Uh, but no, huh? Yeah. No, uh, and I think that uh, it, it tells you a little bit about the difference between what we value and what they valued. Uh, they were more interested in the long haul. We're more interested in the ultimate champion, which we, which is, you know, designed to be created through this elimination contest we call the postseason. Um, they saw the re- they put more value in the regular season uh, than they did in the postseason. In fact, one of the interesting things is that after this is all over with and the the, the last game is played in this climactic regular season series, and Boston is not literally clinched the pennant, but pretty close to clinch the pennant, winning two out of three from Baltimore in Baltimore, uh, the players basically greet each other on the field and they're congratulating each other on their, on their great play. Um, it does not devolve into fist fights. It does not devolve into recrimination or fighting. It's pretty much, hey, nice game, guy, good game, way to go. So uh, what uh, what what came of all of this, right? So Boston sort of uh, vanquished the uh, the evil uh, empire, if you will, of Ned Hanlon's, uh, shall we say, uh, not always above board, uh, Baltimore Orioles. Um, but the the Orioles didn't last much longer after that, did they? No, two things take place here that that shape the thing. One of them is very fundamental. The National League decides uh, we need two umpires. And within a few years, you have a two-umpiring system becomes common in baseball. Uh, two is not really sufficient by today's standards, but it's a darn sight better than one. And it eliminates the opportunity for much of the cheating. You take away the opportunity, you take away the cheating. The second thing that takes place is, is the broader context. A lot of this takes place within the context of the, the ownership of the game itself, which is, you know, is 12 teams run by 12 people. And, and uh, there is a, a, a fight off the field taking place as well, basically for the soul of the game, as to whether it's going to be um, run legitimately or run basically as a business cartel. There's a faction of owners who want to run this uh, as, a, um, as, a, as a cartel, fundamentally, uh, to the extent of having multiple ownership of, of, ownership of multiple teams, um, and uh, this is one of the things that makes some of the teams go away in a couple of years um, because the, the player transfers where, where uh, an owner owns a couple of teams and sends all the good players to one team and all the bad players to another. It creates the competition imbalances. Um, and uh, so there's this kind of good versus evil narrative, if you will, up in the ownership boxes as well. That takes a couple more years to resolve. But by about 1902, the notion of a, of a baseball or a national league as a corporate interest that will be run from the corporate office and essentially become wrestling, professional wrestling, uh, more of a baseball exhibition than a true legitimate contest, uh, that basically eventually goes away. Um, and, and one of the ways that it goes away is to eliminate some of the teams, and they merge, uh, consolidate down from 12 to 8, and four of the teams are eliminated. 
One of them is Baltimore, the Baltimore Orioles. And in part, they're eliminated because how, how can such a great team be eliminated within a couple of years? Well, because the Orioles were owned by a guy who also owned the Brooklyn Dodgers. And after 1898, he sends all of his good players to the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the Orioles fall right off the map. The Dodgers win the pennant uh, with Willie Keeler and a, and a bunch of uh, former, uh, former Orioles. Um, and so that ultimately, within a year or two, gives rise to the American League, which, says, uh, uh, which has Ban Johnson looking at the, the cities that have just been cut by the National League and saying, I can build a very respectable major league myself out of uh, the places they've uh, let go and proceeds to do so. Um, and taking advantage at the time as he does of of a public notion, which isn't doesn't really turn out to be reality, but somewhat does, that he's going to run a more moral league than the National League. Um, and uh, so that continues the kind of good versus evil narrative with the American League becoming the good place and the National League becoming the bad. The Boston Bean Eaters, by the way, um, fall right uh, fall right down into the nether regions of the National League. Uh, in part because their players were getting old, and in part, in, but a large measure, because most of their good players went to the new Boston team in the American League when uh, Ban Johnson organized that team there. Uh, most of the Bean Eaters went right over to the the team that was called the Boston Americans and eventually becomes the Red Sox. So I'm, uh, I, I'm also curious about how, um, you know, the, the sport was viewed by fans at this time uh, because, you know, we also have to remember, too, that there was, you know, aside from newspapers, really not a whole lot in terms of, uh, shall we call it, even modern communications, right? But, you know, this yeah. is, you know, this uh, this battle, this pennant, 1897, you know, this was, um, you know, this was probably the most followed, at least up until this time, uh, sporting event, uh, a championship uh, nature uh, that this in this country, right? And um I guess it's uh, you mentioned a little bit of some of the crowds that uh, sort of overwhelms both of the ballparks uh, over that time. Um, yeah, I, I just, maybe a little, little understanding of sort of just how intense not only this uh, this battle was, but frankly how uh, relatively transfixed the uh, the sporting uh, uh, community was in terms of following it. The thing that I think you have to start with is that uh, you, you have to understand that. What the, what the sports landscape was in those days. There wasn't any football. There wasn't any basketball. Um, there, uh, there was uh, there were a couple things. There was horse racing. Um, there was uh, boxing, which was very big. Uh, but that was about it. Um, if you uh, weren't into those things, there was uh, a little bit of cycling. But if you weren't into those things. Um, it, it really doesn't. It wasn't a whole lot, and baseball was the focal point for anybody interested in in sports. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't really college athletics at that time to speak of. There was in a literal sense, but not in a um, in a sense of drawing substantial public attention. Uh, and so, if you are interested in sports, if you follow sports, if you hang out at taverns, if you talk about things at work, you're talking about one thing, and that's your baseball team. Um, and it drives the conversation 
it and boxing and horse racing. And of course, baseball had one thing going for it that those other two things, horse racing and boxing, didn't have. It was viewed, generally speaking, as legitimate, uh, where oftentimes boxing and horse racing were not viewed as legitimate. And and that, again, is, is one of the things that makes this story important uh, because the... Um, the, this is the time, one of the first, uh, the first time when the decision has to be made, will baseball be viewed as legitimate or illegitimate, or will it be boxing? Which even in those days, I mean, it had a great reputation, but there, was, there were plenty of suspicions of boxing matches being fixed even in those days, and horse racing too for that matter. Yeah, we talked about this in, in, in uh, earlier episodes with, um, you know, about baseball, right? The, the In the beginning, actually, some of this idea of professional baseball uh, being almost uh, sort of lo- looking upon as uh, sort of as a bastardization of the purity of the, of the game. Um, right. By the 1890s, we're past that feeling. There is an acceptance of professional ball, a wide acceptance of it, but an expectation that it will be played legitimately that it's the legitimate sport all right so i got i had two questions that sort of sort of wrap up here so uh, first it feels to me that and you've kind of sort of hinted at it i think but i maybe i just want to put sort of a finer point on it it feels to me like this that this um maybe not this particular season or year but perhaps maybe it was um a source of great pride uh civic uh in a civic kind of manner for the city and the region of boston uh, by winning this pennant is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think uh, they, 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 the, the sense that you have looking at all the material that is contemporary to the time is that it was viewed as something of a crusade. Um, it, it always sounds sort of highfalutin to say that. And, uh, you know, but, but that's the sense that you get. Uh, let me try to put it to you in a quantitative means. Um, in late September of 1897, two things occurred. One, the Boston Bean Eaters team went down to Baltimore to play that climactic series for the pennant um, against the Orioles. The second thing that occurred was that President William McKinley visited the city of, Balta- of Boston um, and came to Boston and made an appearance there and uh, spoke at several events uh, in Boston at that same time. If you look at the next day's Boston Globe, both of those events made the front page, but the game in Baltimore got the larger play by substantial amount. Interesting. And that, that's, that speaks, I guess, to Boston. That's where you're interested in. Which would you rather care? Which do you care about more, the bean eaters or the president's appearance here in the city? No, they want the bean eaters. That's interesting. Um, all right. Well, here's my other question, and uh, we'll maybe sort of wrap up with this. Um, and and uh, the book we're talking about is called "A Game of Brawl: The Orioles, the Bean Eaters." Uh, and uh, it's, it's it's an incredible story about the 1897 uh, baseball season. Um, and I recommend it to uh, to our audience highly, of course. How did you get uh, the late uh, uh, Ted Kennedy? Uh, to write the forward. Uh, that's sort of, I guess, yeah. uh, a baiting question, given the one I just asked you uh, just a second ago. Well, I got, I got half my wish. Here's the truth. I got half my wish. 
when when I when I was writing this, I am thinking to myself, what can we? Is there anything we can do to jazz this up and really get some broader attention to it? And I said, you know what'd be great. Uh, uh, one of the things we didn't talk about is that, that Honey Fitz, uh, Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, Ted Kennedy's grandfather was a founding member of the Royal Rooters. He was a congressman from Boston at the time and was probably the preeminent Royal Rooter member of the group that went to Baltimore for that series. And, and I said to myself, wouldn't it be great if we could get Honey Fitz's grandson, Ted Kennedy, to write a foreword for this book from the Boston perspective and wouldn't it be great if we could get the figurative descendant of, of Ned Hanlon, Earl Weaver, to write a foreword from the Baltimore perspective? And I, I, I messaged both of them, uh, Ted Kennedy through his office, Earl Weaver through uh, the Hall of Fame, to ask them if they would be willing to do it. Just on a wild, you know, a wild shot because, you know, you, you, they're not going to do it if you don't ask them. Ted Kennedy said he would. Um, he, was, he was a big baseball fan, obviously. I think that's fairly well known. Uh, he knew about Honey Fitz. He had, he had sat at the, in the lap of Honey Fitz in the 1940s as a kid, uh, being regaled with these baseball stories. Um, I never heard from Merle Weaver. I don't know whether the Hall of Fame, I assume it forwarded... Uh, my request to him. I assume he didn't pay any attention to it. I don't know that. Maybe he never got it. I never heard from him. I think it would have been great to have Earl Weaver writing a foreword as well with Ted Kennedy from the Baltimore perspective on all of this uh, this stuff going out. But it didn't happen. But I got Ted Kennedy, and uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Alrighty then, thank you to our friend uh, Bill Felber uh, for telling us a little bit more about the 1897 baseball season and the uh, the pennant uh, chase and the uh, I, you know I, I learned as I always do every week uh, interesting uh, new tidbits that uh, allow me to be somewhat entertaining at various cocktail parties that I might go to uh, for at least a couple of minutes and um, this episode uh, did not disappoint in that regard either so I've got a whole boatload of notes for my. Uh, for my next party. So watch out. If uh, if I'm invited to a party near you, uh, you may know some of the things I'm going to try to uh, impress you with uh, from this episode for sure. The name of the book, again, uh, is A Game of Brawl, B-R-A-W-L. Get it? The Orioles, the Bean Eaters, and the Battle for the 1897 Pennant. Uh, it is uh, available uh, wherever good books are found. It is published by our friends at uh, the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, we will have a link, of course, to it. Uh, in this episode uh, description, uh, which you will find on uh, our website. That's goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, just search up this episode with Bill Felber, and you will find not only a little synopsis about the show, but you'll find a link to the book uh, and some uh, some other goodies as well. And of course, uh, that is the place of, to uh, also go just to check out what's going on with the show. You want to find an old episode. Uh, you want to uh, find some of the... Uh, uh, the items that we uh, we talk about and uh, perhaps you'd like to purchase relatively easily from some of our our fine sponsors, you can do that as well. You can also uh, find our 
various social media links at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, on Twitter, that's at goodseatsstill. You can follow us there. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at goodseatsstillavailable. Uh, you can also uh, friend us on Facebook. We've got a little page devoted to our show there. Uh, you can also send us email either directly from the site or just uh, punch up uh, this uh, email address. It's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can always send us a, a mail directly that way. And uh, gee, I don't know what else. Uh, we appreciate your listening, of course. And we also appreciate our friends uh, at Podfly Productions for helping us uh, produce this episode yet again and their fine uh, methods of doing so. And of course, uh, Jerry Payne, uh, the good doctor, our uh, our chief uh, cook and bottle washer when it comes to putting all these pieces together. We thank him uh, tremendously and profusely. And again, if you want to get involved in podcasting and uh, need some help, by all means, check him and them out at podfly.net. Okay, that's it for this week. And uh, we're going to leave you uh, with an interesting uh, little uh, audio uh, recording uh, all the way back to 1903, which is a few years after the uh, the topic that we talk about today, 1897. Uh, but it is probably, I think, one of, if not the uh, earliest uh, known recordings of the uh, the song that became kind of the uh, uh, the, uh, the the theme, if you will, for the uh, Royal Rooters in Boston, uh, which, as you heard, started in 1897. Uh, and uh, this is sung by uh, Billy Murray. Uh, and it is from uh, 1903. And uh, obviously, you Boston Red Sox fans know it now as your sort of historical theme song. But remember, friends, as we leave you, uh, 1897 is when the Royal Rooters got started and their original crush was for the team known as the Boston Bean Eaters. And uh, we leave you with uh, the Billy Murray uh, version of Tessie. You are the only, only, only. Until next week, take care. Tessie. Sung by Billy Murray, Columbia Records. Tessie is a maiden with a sparkling eye. Tessie is a maiden with a laugh. Tessie doesn't know the meaning of a sigh. Tessie's lots of fun and full of scabs But sometimes we have a little quarrel we do Tessie always turns her head away Then it's up to me to do as all boys do So I take her hand in mine and say Why don't you turn around? Tessie, you know I love you madly, babe. My heart weighs about a pound. Don't blame me if I ever doubt you. You know I wouldn't live without you, Tessie. You are the only Around. Tessie, I love 
not wait about the phone. Don't blame me if I ever doubt you. You know I wouldn't. Do 